Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us on EWTN Radio. My guest today is Eric Sammons. He was a, a guest on the Journey Home program Monday evening, and uh, if you had a chance to hear that, you'll know more about his own story. If you didn't, of course, you can pick up Journey Home again when it's replayed on EWTN television. Uh, you can go to EWTN.com on the website and find out a whole lot more, both about the particular program, Journey's Home, as well as Eric's uh, journey. He's joining us here on Deep in Scripture today. What we try to do on this program is to encourage the guest to talk more about what Scripture had to do with his journey. And let me tell you, in case you didn't see the Journey Home program, a little bit more about Eric. He began his study of the Catholic faith in 1991 as an evangelical Protestant, leading to his conversion to the Catholic Church in 1993. He continued his studies of Catholicism and received his Master's of Theology degree at Franciscan University at Steubenville. He is Director of Evangelization for the Diocese of Venice in Florida and has organized parish missions, door-to-door evangelization campaigns, and public forums on the Catholic faith. Sammons has appeared on EWTN is a frequent guest on Catholic Radio, including the the Sunrise Morning Show, Crest in the Afternoon, and Catholic Answers Live. He was also the co-host of the Washington, D.C. radio show, Catholic Matters. His articles have appeared in OSV News Weekly, Homiletic and Pastor Review, The Florida Catholic, Catholic Online, and CatholicExchange.com. He's been married for 16 years to his beautiful bride, Susan, who has been deeply involved in pro-life work over the years, which... Uh, Eric was a big part of your journey. That's right. Spending countless hours praying and, and sidewalk counseling in front of abortion clinics. They have six children and reside in Venice, Florida. And in case you want to connect with Eric, he has a website, Eric Sammons. That's S-A-M-M-O-N-S, ericsammons.com. Eric, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Marcus. Today, I've often said that the Lord prepares us for what he wants us to how he wants us to serve and honor him in our life. So sometimes what we've gone through in the past is specifically to prepare us for what he wants us to do now. What he wants us to do tomorrow, we don't know. We'll leave that to him. But what we're doing now, in many ways, he's prepared us for in the past. And you were with Campus Crusade. That's right. Was he preparing you then for what you're doing now? It's interesting, I think so, because even from the first moments I became you know, started following Christ in high school, had a religious experience where I was born again. I uh, I always wanted to share my faith with others, and I was with people who wanted to share their faith. And it wasn't something looked down upon or looked at funny. In, in fact, I was trained and encouraged to do that. Now, looking back on it, some of the training was a bit uh, faulty and had some problems, especially theological problems. But the the very idea, though, that as a follower of Christ, you are obligated. It's not an, an option. You're obligated to share your faith with others in some form or another has always resonated with me. And so now that I'm you know, director of evangelization, it's my job too. But I, I've always felt like, you know, as, as Catholics, especially one of the things that, you know, to be blunt, when I first became Catholic, it bothered me that I didn't think, I didn't see Catholics when I went around to different parish stuff that, that really felt like they had any desire or obligation to share their faith. I mean, the Catholics who brought me into the church did, God bless them. But as I got more and more experience of living in the Catholic church, I, I, I was a bit scandalized by the fact that many didn't feel like that. I remember one time we organized a door-to-door campaign in a parish, and uh, this woman came up to our pastor when she heard about it, and she said, door-to-door, are we really that desperate? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, to all six billion people in the world are practicing Catholics. Yes, we are that desperate. <laughs> well, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8 in a moment. And you'd also listed possibly Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is that beautiful passage about uh, Christ's sacrifice. And uh, the beginning of that Philippians 5, uh, two passages, have this mind among yourselves. Right. I mean, that really is the key to our Christian faith, is having this mind of Christ, as Paul once said it, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And he wasn't doing that in an arrogant way. That's not the point. The point he was recognizing, his personal responsibility as a witness of Jesus Christ to every single person that sees him, hears him. Uh, And we're called to do that. We fail and we apologize, but our lives are to be a living witness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. They're to conform themselves, ourselves to Christ. We're supposed to live in Christ, as Paul said a billion times, it seems like. And, you know, Paul, I, I love one of my favorite Paul lines, of course, is uh, when he said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I mean, he felt like it was more than an obligation. He just felt like it was this great desire, and he, he had been put upon him by the Lord to share the faith with others. And really... Every single Catholic. That doesn't mean every Catholic goes out like St. Paul necessarily and is a missionary, but it does mean every single Catholic should have that burning desire to be like Christ and to share him with others. We're well, listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I am joined today by Eric Sammons. The first section of Scripture, uh, which is a big section, but it's a good section, is Acts chapter 8, 26, excuse me, 26 through 40. Before I read that for the audience, um, can you give a little background to the audience, why this passage? Why was this in general kind of important to you, Eric? Well, it's general because I think it teaches us how to read the Bible. Both Catholics and Protestants love the Bible. We appreciate it as a a great authority. And really, it is the final word in many cases uh, for what we believe. But the question becomes, how do we read it? And another question is, why do we read it? So why do we read the Bible? How do we read the Bible? And I think this passage answers both those questions. All right, let me read this for the audience. If you have scriptures, follow along. And this will begin with verse 26 in chapter 8 of Acts. But an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he rose and went, and behold, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a minister of the Candace queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture which he was reading was this, As a sheep led to the slaughter, or a lamb before its shear is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken up from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, pray, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught up Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing." But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing on, he preached the gospel to all the towns he came to in Caesarea. All right, Eric, there's a lot here. In fact, yeah. as I read this, there's so much here. It'd be fun to talk about, and we'll see what we get to at all. But let's. what is the context of, of what's happening? Well, we're in Acts, and of course, the, the purpose that Luke wrote Acts was to really talk about how the faith spread, how the church was born, but then how did the faith spread. And really, the book of Acts of the Apostles, you almost could call it the book of two apostles, Peter and Paul, because the first part is about Peter, the second part is about Paul. But there's this interlude here where we're talking about Philip, and they have a few stories about Philip. He's in Samaria and some other places. But then he just, it's kind of an interesting way it happens, that he just gets plopped down in front of this eunuch, and then he gets taken away from the eunuch. And it's it's almost like just the the Holy Spirit decided, okay, this eunuch really needs to get reached, and Philip's the guy to do it, and we're just going to make him go there and then take him away. And so what we're seeing here is 
the church grow, and they're growing in their understanding of, okay, how do we understand the Old Testament? Because remember, the scriptures at this time, that's the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today. And that's one of the great evangelization methods you find in Acts, is that Peter, Paul, and, and Philip here are using the Old Testament to show that it always pointed towards Jesus. And so that's kind of the context that we have with this passage. All right. The first verse, But an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke adds, This is a desert road. (laughs) Why do you think he adds this is a desert road? Any thoughts on that? Well, uh, that's a great question. I hadn't really thought about that, but I do think that Luke was a great – I mean, if you look at his gospel and you look at Acts – it's such a powerful. He's such a powerful writer, really. He is, and he likes to set the setting. What I think it also it, it kind of brings in what we saw with the fact that Philip just shows up out of nowhere and then he leaves out of nowhere. This really is a situation where all the focus is on his discussion with the eunuch. Yeah. There's not even anything surrounding them to distract them. The eunuch has Philip's undivided attention to learn about God, to learn about Jesus, and that's all Philip is there to do. We're not going to look at the trees or anything like that. It's a desert road. <laughs> and that's excellent point because it also, when you think of science, I'm thinking today, for example, when somebody says, boy, if you eat this, it'll make you fat, or if you eat this, you'll die. Well, Life isn't that simple. Right. There are usually many, many factors. Uh, most of the dietary things we we assume in our culture are based on a lot of myth, myths that have arisen over the ages. Is there any direct connect from cholesterol in heart disease? Well, there's a lot of question there. The question, so what you need in a good science is I need to narrow it down to uh, the measurable variables. How many variables are here? Well, he's on a desert road. He's reading a Bible. There are very few variables there. And when the Spirit leads Philip to answer, ask this one question, do you understand what you are reading? I mean, the setting is perfect. This is pure soul of Scriptura. That's right. We have someone that has no clue of what's happened in Jerusalem. Somehow he gets a copy of the Bible. He doesn't have any other extraneous teaching. He's just got the Bible. Okay, can we see in this context whether the Bible alone is going to be sufficient for this Ethiopian eunuch to understand the truth about Jesus Christ? Right, because if you really believe in Sola Scriptura, Phil shouldn't have to show up because he should just have his Bible on a desert road. He's got his Bible. He's reading it. He should be able to figure it out because that's one of the underlying principles of Sola Scriptura is that it's easily understood and that we can figure it out on our own. So, but what does the angel of the Lord do? He, he tells Philip, go there. And so we, we do need Philip. Behold, an Ethiopian and eunuch, a minister of Candace. A lot of people get distracted on the, the eunuch issue, but that's really not right. crucial to the story. Queen of the Ethiopians, uh, in charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, and was returning, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. The beauty of, of grace in God caring about this eunuch, this Ethiopian, to call the, the, the different things that happened to bring him to faith is really a model on how God loves every single individual person. Right, he goes out of his way for every single person to try to give them the grace they need to respond to. And remember the context also of this Ethiopian eunuch. What's the great debate that's going on in the early church that Acts talks about and all of Paul's letters talk about? Are the Gentiles, are they welcome into the church? Now, you notice he's an Ethiopian. He's not a, a Jew, but he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we already see, and he's reading the old, he's reading the Bible, the Jewish scriptures. So clearly, he is at least a God fearer. I would assume that you know that meaning that he was maybe not a Jew, but he probably worshipped in a synagogue. Potentially, he might have gone to the temple. So, but that kind of introducing now, Luke is introducing. Okay, this Ethiopian isn't really part of the Jewish people, and Philip is told by the angel Lord to go to him. So it's it's kind of a way to remind us, okay, this gospel that is being preached 
it's going to, out to the ends of the world now. No longer are we, we kept in Jerusalem. No longer are we kept with just the Jewish people, but we're throughout the world. So I think that's another uh, point to remember there of who it is that Philip is talking to. Even another aspect of that, too, would be we're so accustomed to having not just one copy of the Bible in our house, but how many? Right. <laughs> yeah, look at my bookshelf. <laughs> I mean, I, I must have... 30 different right. translations and copies and Hebrew and Greek and, and whatever. And in those days, that was not the case. Usually, a synagogue president would protect the scrolls. But for the average person out there to have a copy was almost impossible, unless you're extremely rich. In this case, he is in charge of all her treasure. So in her treasure is a scroll. And so that unique grace-filled moment that this uh, minister of Candace has in his hands, the very copies of the Old Testament scriptures. Right, which is a rarity, like you said, for that time. Yep, yep. And so again, all these acts of of God's grace to reach out to them, the Spirit plops them, tells them to go there. And uh, so Philip ran to him, and there you go. You, you teach evangelization. I mean, there's an example right, right that's there right. That's right. of the hunger to share the gospel. It didn't say he slouched over. Right. He said, <laughs> I ran into him. I guess I got to talk to him. No, he ran to him. That's right. Yeah. Just like the, 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 son, the father of the prodigal son ran to the son. He's running to evangelize. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Now, is there... Is there something unique about that question as an opening question, as an example well, I think for evangelization? That, I think you just noticed that he's following the footsteps of his master, Jesus. Jesus asked questions. I think one of the great evangelization tools is to ask questions. If you simply tell somebody, here's what the church teaches, here's our doctrines, you may or may not get a response. But if you ask questions, you find out what answers they're looking for. You start finding out what is it that they are interested in. Because he doesn't just say, you know, oh, here, let me explain that to you. He asks him, do you understand? Because the truth is if the eunuch said, yeah, I'm fine, don't worry about it, well, that means he's not open to be outwardly evangelized yet. And, as he, and when we evangelize, there are many people that are close to it right now. And we, if we try to force it, we don't help in any way. But if we ask questions you know, at the dinner table, at, at Thanksgiving dinner, at what have you, when you're out at work, whatever, asking questions allows you to understand the person and what their specific needs are and what is it that's challenging them. What is it that they need to know or learn about so they become closer to Christ? It also uh, points out that Philip, as one of the first I guess you would call them deacons, so it doesn't really That's right. identify that right. uh, as the group, excuse me, who were uh, called to help at table. But there, this is kind of the the expression of one of the, the holy men in their first excursion um, after Stephen's stoning. Um, but he recognizes that the scriptures alone are not sufficient, or he wouldn't have asked that question. And the word for that that we Protestants used to use was perspicuitous, right? That they would explain themselves. Well, if that's the assumption, Philip wouldn't have asked that question. Yeah, well, well, of course you understand it. You just read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, he would almost said, you're, he's reading it, so, well, you want to be baptized? I mean, right. you might even ask that. He should have known. But, of course, uh, Sola Scriptura, from the beginning, doesn't work less. And then, of course, the, the man himself turns in verse 31. He said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the Scripture which he was reading was this. And then, he, uh, Eric, this beautiful passage from, from Isaiah. Right. And I think this is one of the key parts. I mentioned at the beginning that this passage answers the two questions of how do we read the scriptures and why do we read them? Well, this answers the question of how do we read it? We read it in the context of the church. We read it in the context of the living tradition of the church. He asked, the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? He's saying, I need guidance to understand the scriptures. And who is Philip? Philip represents the church. He's a deacon of the church. He represents the official 
uh, hierarchy, if you will, of the church in this instance. And he, so he's representing the magisterium in many ways. But if we look at this, we, we, really try to, we really should try to take ourselves back and put ourselves in the mind of the eunuch. We read this passage from Isaiah, and it's beautiful to us, and we think it's great. But why would it be beautiful to somebody who doesn't get the context of it pointing to Christ? What's so beautiful about sheep being led to the slaughter? I mean, come on. That's, that's ugly. That's bloody. It's, it's, and it's not opening its mouth. I mean, I don't see what's beautiful about that if I'm not already understanding what it's pointing to. And so we see that Philip, he needs Philip to point him to the fact that this is talking about our Lord. He couldn't understand that on his own. And so I think this is answers that question of how do we read the Bible, that we don't just pick it up in our rooms and figure it out on our own. We have to have that living tradition in the church. And in this case, this tradition of Isaiah being a, uh, a pre-gospel, really, yeah. was very strong already at this time, the time when Philip is talking. Because if you look at the early church fathers, they talked about Isaiah as the fifth gospel, that if you read Isaiah, it's unbelievable how much it's pointing us to our Lord. But that's not something that you just figure out on your own. That was the, the living faith of the church, Christ himself talking about it at times, but also then the early church with Peter and others talking about this really brings it all out. And so really what's happening is the eunuch is entering into the life of the church, the living tradition, and Philip is guiding him to that. So when we read the Bible, how do we read the Bible? We have to read it in that, in that greater context of what the living tradition has, has guided us. Because you could easily misinterpret this passage on your own. Oh. I mean, clearly, he didn't – and the eunuch, God bless him, give him credit, he didn't try to misinterpret it. He's like, I have no idea who this is talking about. Because you know, he says, who does this, who's the prophet talking about? Is it himself or someone else? And so he needs Philip, though, to explain that to him. Yeah, well, we have the account of the, of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. I mean – this uh, character in this story is from Ethiopia, uh, whereas the the two men on the Emmaus Road were there in the context of of, of the whole Jerusalem faith. So they certainly had heard all of this, but they didn't know what was going on right. until Jesus shows up and shows them, tells them. Of course, they still didn't see him until the breaking of the right, bread, right. and there's the whole story, yeah. the whole beauty of that, of that wonderful story. But just as you said, yeah, this... I mean, what you really see is the Holy Spirit not merely guiding the evangelist in this, Philip, but the Holy Spirit preparing the receiver of the gospel, the Ethiopian. Right. He's working in both with the questions, the answers, the need, uh, uh, the desire. In fact, he's even there reading that. He could have been reading the Swart pages if they right. had them in those days. But, you know, the, everything is going on, which is really powerful. So, of course, you have this the beautiful story. And the, as you said, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, pray, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. <laughs> like you had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's commonly yeah. used right. with Jesus. Right. Almost every time, but say something, and Jesus opened his mouth and said, well, as if he was a ventriloquist or something. <laughs> no, because those words are used by the gospel writers to say, like in the Eastern Church, be attentive. Right. That's what's going to be attentive. Something's going to be very important coming up. And he opened his mouth, beginning with the scriptures, he told them the good news of Jesus. And there we have the second question being answered. The first question was, how do we read the Bible? Within the context of the church. The second question is, why do we read the Bible? And if you look at many of the, the church documents recently, about the Bible, they've talked about two major uh, potential pitfalls to reading Scripture. One is the fundamentalist side, that you have people who are taking the Bible, reading the Bible out of the context of the church. But the other is the skeptical scholarship that, you know, takes it apart. And so I think it'd be important to look at how this passage addresses both of those types of biblical readers. That's a a good set for us, because when we come back from the break, it's exactly a a good point. The fundamentalists that really seeing their own agenda, and, and then, of course, those that have their own agenda in a different direction. We'll come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Eric Sammons, and hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Our guest today is Eric Sammons. He's a former United Methodist and now serves as the Director of Evangelization for the Diocese of Venice, Florida. That's right. And uh, you just couldn't wait to get up to Ohio here from from uh, <laughs> South Florida, right? Well, I am originally from Ohio, so I am more used to this snow and cold and things like that than I am uh, Florida Have weather. you been down there long enough to get acclimated? Or? Well, it's amazing how quickly that happens. I've only been down there for about six or seven months now, I think it is, and uh, the blood thins very quickly. And so I'm already get cold at anything under 50 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember when I was a pastor down in Plantation, Florida, which is outside of, of uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, that the first Christmas... Um, you know, I'm running around shorts, and, uh, and there are people with sweaters on. I said, well, you, yeah, this is great. Well, the second Christmas. <laughs> you have your sweater on. I had no sweaters on. Oh, yeah, it right. was just, just an amazing. You're exactly right <laughs> yeah. how, how quick the, the climate changes, which is also interesting in terms of Scripture study because, um, I mean, our life is different where we're living in South Florida or northern Wisconsin. I mean, right. it's a whole different context to understanding certain things. And so it's important to know the context. That's right. To understand the words. And so that's part of what you've been pointing out in this passage in Acts chapter 8. We're looking at verses 26 through 40 in the story of the of the encounter between the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip and looking at the context of Scripture study in, in this very thing. And we... Um, we read verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And so maybe summarize before we took the break, you saw in that, that uh, in the, the right context, because there are extremes in terms of interpreting scripture. That's right. And it, it answers the question of why to read the Bible, because if you look at the Holy Father's writings, many church documents, they talk about those two areas, those two extremes that we can fall into, fundamentalism where we read the Bible outside the context of the church, um, or, or skeptical scholarship, where we look at the Bible as an um, animal to be dissected, you know, like a scientist would dissect a frog. That's how we look at the Bible. But really this is answering the question, why do we read the Bible? It's not a history book. It's not just something so we can learn about ancient cultures. It's so that we can encounter Jesus Christ. That's why we read it. And so the biblical fundamentalists, the Protestants, they have the right – they answer the question why the, with the correct answer. Right. They don't always answer the, correct, the question of how because they read outside the, the church. But they do answer the question of why. And the skeptical scholars, that's what they get wrong very often is they don't see the reason we actually have this book. 
It's to we so we can encounter Christ more deeply. But Philip gets it because think about just imagine for a minute if you could Philip being a skeptical scholar when the eunuch asked him this question he would what did he start with well Isaiah did first of all didn't really write this and it was in the it was written hundreds of years later and he didn't know anything about Jesus and you know and he would just basically demolish it so by the time he was finished the eunuch would say well, what's the point I'm getting out of here throw right. the book away yeah. but what Philip did was. He began with that scripture. He told him the good news of Jesus. He didn't say that he explained the scriptures to him. He said he told him the good news of Jesus using the scriptures. And I think that's very important. Every single word in the Bible is a way, is a means to draw us closer to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of times when I'm talking to people about the Bible, they don't understand how the Old Testament has anything to do with Jesus. But every word in it points to Jesus. And we see Philip with this specific passage. But the idea, though, is that we we read the Bible as individual Catholics, as a community of Catholics as well, in order to draw closer to Christ. Look at this structure of the Mass. We have the Liturgy of the Word at the beginning, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. The Liturgy of the Word isn't just something added on, tacked onto the beginning, so we'd have something to do before we actually receive Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. No, the Liturgy of the Word, we receive Jesus in the Word first, then we receive Jesus in the Eucharist. And so we see that the Bible, the Word of God, is a great way that we do draw closer to Christ, and that's exactly what Philip's doing. So why do we read the Bible? So we can know Jesus better. Well, and this also points out that the Church has always taught, but even more uh, recently, especially since Vatican II, and especially under Pope Benedict, John Paul and Pope Benedict, this understanding of the the layers of Scripture. In other words, there's the literal understanding, and then there's the spiritual understanding. And there are some Latin terms for those, but there's the fact that a a passage, a literal passage, would also carry spiritual layers of understanding that, number one, point to Jesus. Number two, point to our moral lives. What difference does it make for us? And then, thirdly, to the end of life, to heaven, to the final... uh, days of judgment and such. And you'll see these, and, and here's an example. You've got the real person of Isaiah, the prophet, speaking to a real group of people about real problems in their day. But it points forward, type, apology, pointing forward to Jesus. That's what Philip is doing here. That's right. But there's also times, well, what difference does it make with me? Okay, well, this talks about, a good example of that is uh, uh, Noah and the flood. A real, what's the literal meaning of the passage? Okay, we know this whole thing with an ark and the flood and the animals. We can all know the literal. But are there layers? Does it point to Jesus? Does it point to us, baptism and salvation? Does it point to, those are wonderful aspects of biblical study that are part of evangelization. That's right. And I think that that's been very much lost in the life of the church over the past couple hundred years. Because what the, the scholarship has done is it's focused just on the literal sense. And it's just talked about, okay, what was the original context? And they've taken it, divorced it completely from those other senses you talk about. But honestly, sometimes that's exactly what the fundamentalists do as well. But they just have the opposite interpretation of it. But they're only looking at the original context as well. But, for example, in in this passage even, there's so much that you can get from the uh, passage from Isaiah, I mean, where the sheep led to a slaughter, about how we live our lives, that we live in meekness to God, that we, we, we are willing to accept suffering if God brings, you know, allows it, we're willing to accept it, and how do we respond like our Lord did. You know, it, obviously Isaiah originally was talking about the Jewish people this happening to, and Jesus. So there's all these layers, and this is something, though, the church— for 1,800 years, was that was just the normal way you read the Bible. That's right. And that's how everybody read the Bible, and we've forgotten that. And in fact, if you look, I remember when I first started really reading the Scripture scholarship of the early church fathers and even Aquinas, people like that, I thought it was out in left field <laughs> because I just had never been exposed to that. I just only cared about that original first meaning. But if it's really written by both God and man, then obviously God can put meaning into it beyond what even the human authors originally intend. Yeah. In fact, when Jesus in the upper room spoke to the to the eleven, 
And you see it in John chapter 14, 15, 16, ending with his great priestly prayer in 17, when he promises the Holy Spirit that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that whole section about the Holy Spirit leading them into truth, helping them remember, I mean, that's the number one reason we believe that we can even trust these written documents, because he promised the Holy Spirit to the church, and that that Holy Spirit would guide the authors of these books. So just like you said, when, when John says that Nicodemus came at night, there's the literal understanding and there's the anagogical, which is he came with a darkness of soul, right. wanting a, a deeper relationship with Jesus. Exactly. All right, back to our passage. Great stuff because I, I've been, I've had horses holding me back from verse thirty-six because <laughs> <laughs> this one is so oh, yeah. cool. Let me yeah. read it. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "See, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized?" I mean, yeah, I mean, exactly. This is what you we're waiting for, really, because, okay, let's say, let's, up to now, the, Philip is doing a good job. He's explaining the scriptures to him. He's saying, here's what, it's pointing to Jesus. He's telling the good news about Jesus. And so he tells him, just say the sinner's prayer, and you're a Christian, and I'll go home. Well, no, okay, no, that's not what he said. <laughs> because obviously, when he explained the good news of Jesus to him, what is the good news of Jesus? The good news of Jesus is that we can enter into his body. We can become part of the body of Christ on earth, and we can be enter into Christ and live in Christ, what Paul talks about all the time. Well, he had to tell him how to do that. And the eunuch said, I love how the fact that it's the eunuch who said it, not Philip. Philip didn't say, hey, go get <laughs> baptized, because Philip had obviously told him already Okay, the way that you enter into Christ is you get baptized, the sacramental life of the church. And that's exactly what the eunuch says. He obviously has received this message from Philip, and he agrees with it, and he's decided, I will give my life to this. And so he says, what's to prevent me from me, from me being baptized? So it, when we say, what is it that brings makes somebody become a Christian? How do we share with them to bring them to faith? And the question, what must I do to re- receive eternal life? All those questions we see what Philip obviously told him, get baptized, enter into the sacraments. And for adults, we recognize that that is, it is indeed a combination between faith and the sacramental entrance into the church through baptism. For infants, because Acts says elsewhere that whole families came in, and so we recognize from the very beginning that baptism for infants, as Augustine will more thoroughly explain a couple centuries later, you know, frees them from the stain of original sin. They start from scratch. They got a clean slate, but now it's the adults who have the faith. It's a responsibility to pass that faith off to the children, and, and that's the beauty. Where did Philip get this idea? Was he just a great, intelligent theologian that came up with it? Well, he learned it from the apostles. The apostles learned it from Jesus. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I, I think that passage from the end of Matthew is a great one to look at just a little bit more. Sure. Because what does he say that the apostles are supposed to do? He, they are to go out and make disciples. So that's the first thing. They're making disciples. They're not just making people who make a one-time decision for Christ or anything like that. They're that's making people point. who yeah. live a full life in Christ. And so he says, make disciples of all nations and baptize them. And so it's combined. What is, I should say, actually, he says, make disciples. But then he gives them, there's two ways that that happens. You baptize them and you also teach them. And I think that shows kind of the the fact that this is not a club that we join where we learn certain rules, and if we follow them, we are admitted as members' disciples. There's a work of God here, too, because the baptism, it's just a, per, a human being pouring water over another person on the outside. It doesn't, that's not going to do anything. But because it's God who acts in baptism, we see to be a disciple, there's two aspects to it. There's the, the God aspect, of, for lack of a better way. He actually makes you a child of God in baptism. But then there's also our aspect of it. We're taught these things, and we have to teach to observe the commands. So we have a response to that. So when Philip is teaching this eunuch, he's basically saying to be a disciple, 
you have to first give your life to God and be baptized, enter into Christ. But then also you have to observe the commands of God. You have to follow him in everything you do. And so that's really how we are made into disciples are those two aspects of it. Yeah, and it isn't just teach the things you're comfortable with. <laughs> there is an operative word in there, all, right. that I have taught you. And that's what the responsibility was. They had a, the, the, the apostles had responsibility to pass on all that they had received from our Lord, guided by the Holy Spirit, on to others. And we see in Second Timothy 2, 2, Paul telling Timothy to choose others who can teach others who can teach others. It's called apostolic succession, the passing on of the apostolic deposit of faith. I mean, to a certain extent, Eric, that really is a big responsibility of yours as director of evangelization, to train people that what they pass on is not merely the things they like about the right. faith and avoid the things they're uncomfortable with, but all of it. That's right. And that's a very um, – it's an important point because, you know, I work for a diocese. And so I represent the bishop of my diocese. And that's more than just the fact that, oh, he's my boss, so I have to do what he tells me to do uh, and teach what he teaches me to do. No, his responsibility as bishop is to follow this command to baptize, make sure people are baptized, and also to teach them to observe all the commands I gave you. And if you think about it also, just to continue on this passage in Matthew 28, uh, 19, he says, and know that I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. So in other words, his followers, his apostles, will be making disciples until the end of time. And to make disciples, that means they have to, first of all, be able to convey the the sacraments, the, the baptism, but also all the sacraments. So that's one aspect of apostolic succession. It's the ability to have men who can baptize, uh, administer the Eucharist, and all the sacraments. And that's, of course, the bishop is ultimately responsible for that. But the second part of that is they also have to be able to teach rightly. It says, teach all the commands I gave you. Well, till the end of time. That means they have to be able to teach those truthfully. I remember one time I was in a debate about, with a Protestant about this, and I said, how do you know that your pastor's teaching all that Christ taught? You have to have some guarantee in that, and we go into the, you know, we could go into it for a long time, but the infallibility of the church, that the church teaches infallibly. When it teaches on faith and morals authoritatively, we know it's true. And so we see how apostolic succession ties us all together of baptism, the sacraments being handed on from generation to generation, and also the teaching of the church, the infallible doctrines of the church, also get handed on from generation to generation. Yeah, how do you know if what you're teaching is true? There are those Christian groups that would say, well, I got the Bible here. That's what's true. But the truth is, the more you look at it, there are verses you have to either avoid or you have to explain away or try and fit into a, your particular mindset because uh, – or it doesn't deal with everything. Uh, so how do you interpret and or you take the example of my own Presbyterian, former Presbyterian denomination, had a, had a magazine called Theology. I think I mentioned that mm-hmm. in The Journey Home. Well, if the Bible is sufficient, why do you also have to have a magazine called Theology? <laughs> and because they have to keep using a particular grid. For Calvinists, it's the sovereignty of God. For Lutherans, it's faith alone. Which is a tradition. Yes, <laughs> exactly right. Let's take one more break, Eric, and we'll come back and uh, we'll finish up this great passage from Acts. Great. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I am joined today by Eric Sammons, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Eric Sammons. He's a former United Methodist, and uh, he's got a book called Who is Jesus Christ? Unlocking the Mystery in the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, that book is superfluous since the Bible alone is sufficient. That's right. Let's just throw it out. (laughs) We don't really need it. (laughs) 
But you need a book like that because there are lots of conflicting opinions out there about authorship and when it was written and why it was written. And well, one, when I people would ask me about the book and they say, you know, what it's about. And one of the things I always tried to emphasize was I'm not trying to say anything new in here. I'm trying to simply reflect what the tradition of the church has said about Christ in the scriptures, in the life of the church, in the liturgical life of the church, in the spirituality of the church, in church teachings such as, you know, dogmas. All those things are all a united whole. We like to think of them as separate, like the dogma, things like the sacraments. Oh, that's an extra add-on that's not essential to us following Christ. But we see from this passage we've been looking at with Philip, it's clearly essential. It's the means by it ha- in which it happens. And the same thing is true of like dogmas. Some people like to say, oh, I'm not, I don't, you know, the creeds aren't important, you know, the Nicene Creed or what have you, and that's just dogmas, and those are kind of add-ons. No, those are ways in which we, the, they're the legitimate lens. You mentioned the lens before in which a grid that you read Scripture. The creeds, such as the Nicene Creed, is a legitimate lens that the Holy Spirit led the church to, to read the Bible so that we don't get off on some tangent when we're reading it. Because, I mean, as you know from your experience and my own, you can come up with just about anything from yeah. the Bible alone. Yeah. So this gives us that, that those clear grid that we can read the Scriptures properly. Well, I want to take another question about Matthew because I, I know we're running out of time here, but I want to get this in. I think it's key that, when again, you mentioned in this passage that when the Ethiopian eunuch asked about the meaning of this passage, which is from Isaiah, Philip's answer wasn't a whole bunch of biblical scholarship stuff that that denigrated the understanding of the reality of who wrote it, when it was written, and whether it was 1, 2, 6, or 15 Isaiahs and all those other (laughs) issues. But talk a bit briefly about the difference in interpreting Scripture if you consider Mark as the foundational document, which is the modern hypothesis, versus Matthew as the foundational document that was the traditional understanding. Yeah, and I would just say outright that I believe Matthew was written first, and I accept that you know, hypothesis, I guess you could call it, because that is what the early Christians always taught. That's right. what they always said was Matthew came first. And it, well, first I want to say one reason why I think the presuppositions behind a mark and priority are wrong, and that is they think because it's shorter, it's simpler, therefore it came first. Evolutionary thought is that simpler always comes before complex. But as Pope Benedict pointed out, if you look at the history of religions, that's not how it works. What you have is you have an influx of grace all of a sudden with great people that come out and then people trying to figure it out. So he gave the example, if you look at the writings of St. Paul versus the letter of St. Clement, which is a, a, a writing from the Bishop of Rome in the late first century, Paul is clearly a more complex, a greater writing. But we all, every scholar agrees that he came before Clement, obviously. And so and the same is true of the Gospel of John and the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, that the more complex supposedly actually was first, and they're just trying to figure it out. And so that's the presupposition, one of the main ones behind Mark and Priority. But Matthew, the, thing, the, the great thing about the Gospel of Matthew and the fact that it's first is that it's the Jewish-Christian gospel. He wrote it for the Jews, in which, in which kind of reflects the idea and suggests the idea that it is first, because if you look yeah. at the history of church— it was all Jews at first, and it was a long time before the Gentiles started to dominate the discussion, so to speak. And so Matthew is addressing the concerns of the Jew who's thinking about becoming a Christian or has already become one, and what he does throughout it is he's using the Old Testament and saying how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. And so we see, and also we see in Matthew, a very high ecclesiology. He's the one who talk, who has the passage from uh, Jesus talking to Peter and saying, upon this rock I will build my church. And he also mentions church later and talking to the apostles in general. So we have a very strict ecclesiology and scholars who want to denigrate the church. Yep. Well, we need to put Matthew later then, because if we put him, if he's too early, that could mean that the early Christians actually had a idea of the church that was beyond just a very simplistic one. And so I think if you look at the history of how Mark and Priority came into being with Mark and Q, and I won't go into all that, you'll see it basically was many scholars had presuppositions they then had to make come true. And one of them is a very anti-Catholic, against the church attitude. And so by by denigrating Matthew, frankly, and making him less important, you basically come across and do that. 
with that assumption was that that passage in Matthew 16 about the Christ building his church on the rock of Peter was not really words of Jesus, but were put into his mouth. That was the higher critical. Right, and answer. much later put into his mouth by after the church had somehow developed by like 100 A.D. or who knows when. I mean, I've seen scholars, older scholars who have been you know ridiculed now who put the Gospel of John, for example, being written in like 150 or 160 A.D., and then all of a sudden they found actual copies of it from before that, and like, oh, oops. And, you know, so you had to keep pushing it back. And and so, yeah, it's just a matter of they feel if we push it out as far as possible, we can credit these words to somebody other than Jesus himself. Yeah, I think the analogy I've heard is that for these uh, liter- critical scholars are looking down a deep well and seeing their own reflection right. in the water. You know, that's basically it. They're reading themselves and their right. own biases. So, all right, well, let's finish up this passage. So, I'm sorry, to, good stuff, though. And he, and he commanded the eunuch to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught up Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and Passing on, he preached the gospel to all the towns till they came to Caesarea. And so we see really the conclusion of this, and it, it takes us back to the beginning of the passage where Philip kind of shows up out of the blue and just doesn't even nowhere context of where he came from almost, and then all of a sudden he just disappears. And so it really is Luke's way of saying, okay, we have this good godly man, the eunuch, and he's trying to find Jesus but he needs somebody to help him find Jesus. He needs the church, and he needs to enter into the church through baptism in order to be a follower of Christ. And so it's a great passage because it really is a nice passage almost all to itself to show what we need in order to become a good follower of Christ, to really have that open heart and to be listening in, hum- in humility. I mean, think about how humble this eunuch is, to listen in humility to what the church says. And then when we hear that, we respond by entering into it through baptism. Yeah, I don't know how people of the day viewed eunuchs. I don't know that. But it might have been that if a field would just sit along the road and saw the Ethiopian eunuch, he might have said, boy, that guy could never touch him. I could never convince him of the faith. But the point of the passage is you should never discount anyone. That's right. We have to be open to the Spirit of the Lord to call us to be Philip for those eunuchs we've run into. All right, Eric, thanks a lot for joining us on Deep in Scripture. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to contact Eric, you can contact his website, www.ericsammons.com. That's E-R-E-C-S-A-M-M-O-N-S.com. Thank you, Eric, and all of you. Thank you for joining us on this program. If you go to chnetwork.org, you can find out all about the Coming Home Network, and you can even watch this program on the Internet. See you next week. God bless. It's a joy to be with you.